Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Motherkind Podcast, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence and clarity. Thank you if you come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. If you love the podcast, do me a massive favor, hit that subscribe button. It makes a way bigger difference than you probably realize. So thank you. This week's guest is Dr. Becky Kennedy. She is a clinical psychologist, a social media superstar, a mum of three and founder of the brilliant parenting platform Good Inside. You are going to learn so much from this episode. I guarantee this is going to make your parenting life and your life in general easier. We talk about why we're all good inside and how that simple idea can radically change how we respond in the moment to our children. We also talk about how beliefs get passed down the generations. And I have spoken about this idea for years to tons of experts. And I think Dr. Becky's is the simplest, best explanation I have ever heard. We also talk about how to know which mode we're in as mothers, whether we are just trying to survive or we're trying to up that base level and why knowing that changes everything. We also talk about why selflessness helps no one and what to do instead. And we finish the conversation. Make sure you listen to the end because we have an incredibly powerful discussion about why our generation of mothers are part of this vital empowerment movement and how we all need to play our part in that. So please, please, please listen to the end and also share this episode. It is pretty rough out there, my loves. What we have to do as modern mothers, we need these messages. We need this information from experts like Dr. Becky. And this podcast is totally free. All you have to do is copy the link and send it to three of your friends that you want to feel better about themselves, that you want to have this information and these tools. So please help me spread the brilliant wisdom of the guests that we have on. Here it is. Welcome, Dr. Becky. I was thinking about last night and this interview, and I think one of the things that just really, really strikes me whenever I watch you speak or I've done some of your workshops is the passion. I feel like there is such a passion with just the way that you deliver everything that you do. And I was wondering, Where does that come from? Has it always been there or has it grown as you've developed into this work? I think both. You know, I think early on, even pre any Instagram podcast, anything like that, I was just kind of always struck by how easy it is to almost look at kids with no respect for them, (laughs) right? And how many interventions and approaches, I don't think anyone would say are based on disrespecting kids. No one would say that. But when you really break them down, there is an inherent disrespect. There's a lack of acknowledgement for their inherent capability. And there's this separation as if the things kids need aren't the exact same things adults need. Like we just forget that. And One of my supervisors early in my clinical career, even when I wasn't working with kids anymore, I was working with adults and I was doing a lot of parenting work with adults about their kids, but not with the kids themselves. I just remember she said, you're such a champion of children. And I never thought about myself that way. But I feel like what gives me the most passion really is like being a champion of adults and kids, right? Like we can parent in a way that feels 
better for everyone. Like we don't have to choose something that feels awful to our kids and seemingly good for us. I actually think the things that feel awful for kids feel awful for adults. Like no adult I know likes giving a timeout, likes yelling at their kids. It doesn't make anyone feel good. And so I think the passion you see is because I'm like, wait, there's a better way for everyone. Like the whole system can feel better. It's not even like, let's respect kids, but this is going to feel awful to you. No, you're going to feel better. Your kid's going to feel better. Your partnership's going to feel better. Your whole family system's going to feel better. We don't have to choose. And then I think the reason the passion has built I've become, I mean, it's like so much more of an optimistic, hopeful person through my Instagram journey, through definitely now this Good Inside membership, where over and over and over, there's this global community in the membership that comes and supports each other, that doesn't judge, that offers wisdom and experience. And I've been there and sending you a hug and just the way I'm seeing every single moment. Wow. There are so many humans in this world who are so filled with goodness, so sharing of that with others. This really feels like a movement that can change so much. And so I think the ideas give me passion, but then seeing the response and the way that other adults take this on as their own and continue to spread it, that really fuels my passion that much further. It's been a cornerstone for me just remembering like, I am good. I am a good mom having a hard day. Jessie is my six-year-old, is good. Rose, my two-year-old, they're good. We are good inside. I come back to that almost every day. I really thank you for that phrase. Where did that idea come from? Where did it come from? I mean, I think maybe that is the core belief that drives everything. And in some ways, the idea that we are good inside and our kids are good inside seems kind of like obvious and simple. But it's actually, I think, kind of revolutionary because, again, all these approaches to parenting that we've been fed, at least in America, I feel like it's just so steeped in behaviorism. It's as if behaviorism has moved from the fiction shelf to the nonfiction shelf over the last number of decades. It's like a truth, you know, that we've just all come to accept in parenting and education all over. And no one with a behavioral approach, the timeouts, the punishments, the rewarding the good and the ignoring the bad and the shaping behavior, nobody says, at the core, we believe kids are bad inside. Like if anyone said that, I think we'd be like, whoa, I don't know if I want to buy into that. No one says that. But the only reason you would have to so deliberately shape behavior and control children, the only reason you have to control anybody is kind of because you believe inherently there's not a goodness that wants to come out. I do think there's this assumption of badness that we've all been brought up with right? It's so much easier to come up with a least generous interpretation of your child's behavior than a most generous, right? I told my kid, you know, no pretzels before dinner and they took pretzels anyway. They're trying to show me that they don't respect me and they never listen. And we just come up with these. And I do too, of course, I'm not immune from this, but it's harder to come up with weight maybe my child isn't disrespecting me. Maybe my child simply really, really wanted pretzels and it was hard to control that urge, right? I think if I, if someone saw me with my husband and he's like, Becky, I'm making a nice dinner. Please don't eat before dinner. And then if he saw me like taking a couple Hershey kisses before, if he was like, you do not respect me. I think anyone would be like, that's not what's happening. She just like wanted some chocolate. Like she couldn't control herself. Chill out, right? So We have this assumption, I think, of badness that comes out. And then if we wonder why so many adults struggle with self-worth and self-blame, right? It's like, well, it probably is related to the fact that early on, 
when we had more feelings and urges and we had skills, no one looked at us as a good kid having a hard time who needed to build skills. People looked at us like a bad kid doing bad things. And there's that legacy of badness. So this idea of good inside, you said it yourself, Zoe, in in the best way. It really is the ultimate intervention, not just an idea. Because if we say to ourselves, whoa, 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 okay, my kid took pretzels before dinner. Wait, my kid is good inside. My kid is good inside. My kid is a good kid who took pretzels when I said not to take pretzels. I'm a good parent who feels annoyed at my kid for taking pretzels. Like if we just ground ourselves in that goodness, we probably are going to choose an intervention that's very, very different from the one we would kind of enter into from a state of reactivity. And so I always tell people, and it's the, it's the name of my book, it's the name of our membership platform, Good Inside. The reason I love it as the name is, is like just a reminder all the time of that strategy. The other thing about Good Inside that I think is so powerful is if we think about our kids as good inside, we then have a gap between how we see their identity as good And how we see their behavior as often not so good, right? Like hitting, not so good. Okay. And then we could say, there's this gap. Why would a kid who's good inside hit her brother? Hmm. And when you have that hmm moment, that gap between internal goodness and kind of external, not so good behavior, then we can get curious. And curiosity to me is the key to any successful intervention or plan, right? And then we intervene based on the idea that my child who's good inside needs my help bringing that goodness out, not my child who is bad inside essentially needs to be controlled or punished. You said something, I'm going to get into it because I did your deeply feeling kids workshop because I have a deeply feeling six-year-old and you said something in that, which was, what if you could approach every interaction with curiosity, not criticism? And I actually wrote it on a post-it. And I have to say, I use that more with my husband now. (laughs) Curiosity. I'm wondering why you did that when we agreed that not criticism. You didn't, I mean, I use it in my parenting too, but I think that idea, those three words are just revolutionary and game-changing. Yeah. And for anyone listening, and I, I'm going to speak for both of us. So we were like, it's not like me and Zoe always are just like this in compassionate curiosity mode. Like no one can help themselves going into criticism mode. You get reactive. We feel threatened. We often take things personally, right? Like we take personally what our husband does, or we take personally that my child's not listening to me means they disrespect me, right? We kind of, in a way, center ourselves. And then it's really easy to be critical because when you center yourself on someone else's behavior, you look at it as a reflection of how they think about you instead of a struggle they're having. And that's a really, really different path to walk down. But I do that too, all the time. I think the first goal is even just now for anyone listening, pause and say, okay, let me think about something I've been critical of in someone else. It's my child hitting their sibling. I always say, what is wrong with you? Or is my husband always forgetting to take out the trash? Do you do anything around here? Okay, I'm human, like anyone else. The goal isn't to never be critical. The goal is when I'm in a more grounded state, to pause and maybe say, okay, my husband, let's say, is good inside and he forgot to take out the trash. My kid is good inside and they hit their sibling. Can I be curious retrospectively? Because I always think before we access a skill in the moment, we have to use it retrospectively. We have to use it after the fact. And I always feel like then we get closer and closer and closer. We like close the gap to the present. And at some point it will be available but not if we chastise ourselves and not if we just say, oh, what's wrong with me, right? So even doing that work retrospectively, hmm, why would someone hit a sibling? Well, why would I act out towards someone I love? You know, I always think that's what I come to to access that 
curiosity too, is reminding myself, wait, I also do things I'm not proud of. And kind of reminding ourselves again of our similarity with our kids can help us access a more curious and less critical framework. I just absolutely love it. And I want to dive a bit deeper into this because this is another thing that you talk about so brilliantly is that often the time when we most want to leap into that criticism, you might use the word triggered, is when it's something that we were shamed for as children or something that we were shut down for. And this is why I just adore your work because I'm really into thinking about cycle breaking and just watching my own reactions. I'm like, wow, this is actually nothing to do with what's in front of me here. (laughs) This is to do something else. Can you help us unpick that big sort of web? I'm imagining a big ball of wool sometimes. It's like pulling the threads, isn't it? A hundred percent. That's a beautiful image. Exactly. Yes. So triggers, right? And our kids and the way that like our kids kind of become actors in our own play. (laughs) You're like, whoa, okay. The circuit in me that just reacted to a behavior in them, that circuit predated their existence. Like it was probably in my body. I got triggered when they had a tantrum, but that circuit lived in my body way before they were even alive. So I think it's easy to go into, oh, so it's my fault mode. I always think like there's something between it's my fault or my kid's fault. Can we just have a world where it's nobody's fault and there's an actual opportunity just to learn and change? That just seems more effective. So it's not your fault. It's not your kid's fault. This is just an opportunity. So let's take tantrums as an example. I hear this from a lot of parents. Like when my kid has a tantrum, which often is over something seemingly on the surface irrational, I get triggered. Like I know the parent I want to be in that moment. I know it. I've read the books. I've watched the videos. And yet the moment comes and I'm saying things I promised myself I wouldn't say. So what is going on in this moment? So I'm deeply inspired by internal family systems theory, Dick Schwartz's theory of the mind and the body and so powerful. So I'm going to give an explanation that's IFS inspired. What do we do as kids? Let's start with ourselves, right? And then we'll come back to the present moment and the trigger of your child's tantrum. Well, when we were kids, same thing for our kids now that they're kids, a kid's job is to figure out how to survive. Human beings are dependent for so long compared to other animal species. I never know the age exactly, but I don't know. Like it takes, you got to be over 10 at least. I'm probably older to like really survive on your own. So what that means is as our bodies are developing wiring, it's developing wiring in the context of utter dependency on your caregivers. So everything you're learning in your body is some version of, is this safe? Is this going to get me closeness and connection with my parents, which means survival? Or is this going to get me distance and punishment and being sent away? And some version of, ooh, we don't do that in this family. And that is actually a threat to my survival because survival is based on attaching and really being proximal to my parents. So we think our kids are interacting with us based on just what's happening in the moment. They are actually filtering everything that's happening with us in the moment through that lens of, is this maximizing my survival through attachment or is this threatening? And then their bodies wire accordingly. So let's say in your own childhood, someone's listening here, you grew up in a family and you might say, I don't even remember the details, but yeah, I'm pretty sure if I have a meltdown in a toy store about a toy I wanted for myself, like I don't even have to remember, but I know the response that would have happened. It would not have been pretty. Some version of a punishment, some version of you're so spoiled, some version of, I don't know. People have said to me, yeah, my parents probably would just literally have left me in the store. They just would have walked out. So what do we know there? We know 
it literally wasn't safe for me to express my strong wants and needs. What are tantrums after all? They're wants and needs that kids have. It is very hard to have a want and not have a want fulfilled. Even for me, I do not like wanting things and having them. It's not always pretty for me. So it's definitely not pretty for a three-year-old. But the problem isn't that a kid wants something. The problem is that a kid hasn't developed the skills yet for wanting and not having a skill that all of us continue to work on. But often that's not seen. If your tantrums would have been shut down harshly in your own childhood, it was probably because your parents didn't really understand the difference. So words like, what is wrong with you? We came here to buy your cousin a present. You are so spoiled. You make everything difficult. A parent with those words probably doesn't understand, whoa, 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 whoa. It's very normal to want things. In fact, if I fast forward my child's life, I want my kid to become an adult who wants things for himself. I also want them one day to be able to manage wanting and not having, but we probably don't get there through shaming the want. We get there through managing the wanting and not having and tolerating and regulating, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't happen. So let's say three-year-old you has this experience. And it's not one experience that wires us, but it's kind of like a version of this over and over and over. What do you learn? Again, learning, learning, learning. Our bodies are so adaptive. Kids are so brilliant and crafty. This is what a kid learns. Wanting things is not safe. Wanting things is definitely not safe if my parent doesn't want me to want that thing. And a strong want? No, 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 no. So bad, so bad, so bad. So we develop a part of us. We really do. There's a part of us that wants. We saw that part on display at the toy store. We develop another part of us, literally. It's a protector part. The protector part is learning and say, I'm going to protect my own body from these wants because as long as I can keep my wants behind like a really strong door, I'm going to get so many more smiles and hugs and connection from my parent. And that's what orients me to life. Okay. So how do I shut down my wants? Well, you know how we learn to shut down our wants? Harshly. Our protectors get really, really harsh with us because that's often what we've internalized from our own interaction. So I'm going to develop a part of myself the next time I go to a toy store. That's something like this. Becky, you better not be selfish. Don't be selfish. Don't ruin this moment. You always want too many things. You are too much for people. That actually might stop me from having a tantrum. I mean, if we think about it in a zoomed out perspective, like how adaptive. Now I haven't done the thing that makes my parents so mad at me. I am maximizing survival. Now let's now fast forward 35 years. You're maybe in a toy store with your kid or you're not. You're just in the kitchen and your kid wants a less crispy crispy apple. You know, I don't know the things that kids upset about, right? This apple is too crispy. I want a less crispy apple. Well, what does your body do? You think you're responding to your kid. That's not what our bodies do. Our bodies scan themselves. They say, what do I know? What do I know about the situation? (laughs) What circuits have I developed? What's adaptive? That protector part of you really is like, I can help. I know what to do. This is so dangerous. This is literally threatening this whole situation. I will take the driver's seat. (laughs) And they do. And they take over us. And they eventually say to our kids some version of what that exact part learned to say to ourselves to shut down the thing that was so threatening. What is wrong with you? You always ask and ask and ask. Unless, Chris Apple, you're so ridiculous. We're just trying to get through the morning, right? Our kid starts crying. We feel awful about ourselves. But the amazing part about our triggers And this is actually the foundation for change. And it's interesting. So we were recording this two days before my upcoming triggers workshop. I don't know if you know this. So like, this is literally the perfect question. I've been obsessing over this topic is we have to come at it from a place of compassion because our body is hesitant to let go of the things that were put in place to protect us. Like, thank goodness. Like, I'm so glad now as an adult, I don't have to relearn 
looking both ways before I cross the street. Like, I'm so glad my body knows I learned that young. And I'm going to continue looking both ways. Like, it wouldn't be adaptive to just let go of things that were put in place to protect us. So our triggers with our kids, they're really our protector parts from our early years. Like I always say, like, they get a little overzealous. Like, they get a little confused. They don't know. It's, hey, it's 2022. It's not 1990 anymore. I'm not in that toy store, right? I always think it gets dark in our body. It just gets confused. But we have to come at change from that place, that place of thank you. Thank you for all your years of service. I don't need you in the same way as I used to, but you are trying to help me. And the next step that I'll say for everyone listening, which is so life-changing, is when we're triggered by a kid, let's say we're triggered by their tantrum, we want to shut it down in them, just like we had to learn to shut it down in ourselves. It's like the gap between our comfort with ourselves and what we see in our kids is too big. So we kind of say, okay, I'm just going to shut it down in them. The biggest trick of all this is for everyone right now to think of something that they're triggered by in their kid. And then we have to kind of think about like, what does that represent? Because it's not the tantrum. It's probably the big feelings or the big wants, or it's not really the whining. It's the fact that whining represents helplessness and needing others or something like that. And then if we take that next step and think, okay, what if instead of shutting that down in my kid, I really thought about growing that part in myself. Because I guess another way to close that gap between me and my kid is not to make them more like me, but to almost like be inspired by them and like make me a little bit more like them. Do I need to ask for help? Do I need to express a feeling? Right? It doesn't mean you have to have a tantrum in a toy store. Although if you want, you know, that feels healing, go ahead. You know, it doesn't harm anyone. But it's really a complete reversal and framework. And not only leads you to show up in a more grounded way, but even better, in my opinion, it just leads you to have access to more parts of yourself and be like a fuller human being. And that's going to benefit you even more than it's going to benefit your kid. That explanation was just incredible. And so many things of chink, 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 chink. And I think that's why we talk about there's been so much talk, isn't there, in the last decade about the inner critic. And I love the way it's moving on now to talk about the inherited critic. And what you just described was so clear in terms of how that happens. Because you can then see if that parent wasn't following you or doing your workshop, how that child would then develop exactly the same inner critic. And I think it's so fascinating, isn't it? Particularly with wants and needs. Because so many mums, you know, I work with mums, they say, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. And it's just so amazing if we can do that really hard work of thinking, what if this trigger is an opportunity for me to change some stuff to heal it? But it's so hard in the moment when you're also knackered and we're off the back of a pandemic and you might be going through marriage difficulties or you've just made been made redundant or it can feel like another thing, can't it? Are there times in our parenting when we just can't access that. Okay, let me reflect. This is what I really grapple with. How do we hold those two? I know I need to do this work, but I can't get to it right now. I think that's a really, really important question. So I think in anything in life, we can think of ourselves in one of two modes. And knowing what mode you're in is really important because it gives you insight in the type of interventions you need. I think about it like a fire situation. Okay, so in a fire, if you actually had a fire in your home, you could get out, right? But like there was a small fire. If there was a small fire, the only thing you would do is contain that fire. Like, yes, you definitely should be fireproofing your home to make it less vulnerable for whatever the root cause was. But if you saw someone with a fire in their home, 
running around fireproofing their home for the next time, you'd be like, whoa, girl, like just get out of your house or like just contain that fire, like close the doors. Yes, well-intentioned, but like wrong place, wrong time, right? So what you would want to do is close the doors and, you know, I don't know, I'm not a fire expert, but like you'd probably want to like put wet washcloths under the door, like you'd contain the fire. That's containment mode. What happens when you contain the fire? Well, after you've contained a fire, you're back to your baseline. At your baseline, you can think, okay, I want to fireproof my home. Like I want to raise my baseline. And I feel like in life, we have to recognize, am I in fire containment mode or am I in fireproofing mode? Really, am I in survival mode or am I in thriving mode? You should not be using any interventions to thrive when you're trying to survive. Also though, once you've survived something hard, if we're not doing the extra work, it's not our fault. It doesn't mean anything bad about us, but why would we be in any different of a place the next time? We've just gotten back to our baseline. Most humans I know want to raise their baseline over time. They don't want to stay where they are. This is the same thing with a tantrum. What do you do when your kid's having a tantrum? You survive that emotional fire. You just got to contain the fire. Do you want to make your kid less vulnerable to tantrums through building emotion regulation skills? A hundred percent. There's a million things we can do. None of them during a tantrum. None. So as a mom or as a parent listening, what you said, Zoe, about so many, especially women being like, I literally don't even know what I want. That is so common because so many of us were kind of, quote, trained to be people pleasers, which really means getting as far away from your own wants and needs as possible and attuning to what others want of you at the expense of what you want for yourself. Anybody who doesn't know what they want internally is expert at knowing what people want of them. It's amazing. It's like, wow, how does everyone else's wants of me have all the real estate in my body? So knowing also how overwhelming this is, I think that first question is, okay, like what mode am I in? Am I in, there's such a big problem right now in my life that I just need to survive it? Or do I have any time and space to raise my own baseline? The irony is we change over time by raising our baseline. We, of course, always have to survive those fires, but that doesn't actually lead to change. It's why parenting can feel so exhausting for so many parents because you are just kind of fighting one fire after another. And then you're thinking, I don't want to spend my whole life fighting fires. I actually want to feel more confident. I want to feel more connected to myself and my kid. Yeah, that doesn't come from containing a fire. That comes from after. So I think there's big questions. Number one, do I have anyone that I consider supportive in this journey, that I really talk to about what's really happening. Even just saying to someone, I feel like I'm in constant fire containment mode. For someone else to be able to say, I get that. Like, I've been there too. You're not crazy for feeling that way. You're not a bad parent for feeling this way. Guess what just happened? Your fire literally just got a little bit smaller because you're not adding the fuel of shame and aloneness to it. So actually, you're going to be more likely to get to baseline raising mode, just because you have a little bit of support, your fire was just a little bit more easily contained. That's like the beauty of community and connection. Some people have that in a partner. Some people have that by saying, you know what? I need to say to my partner that they need to do bath time and bedtime half the days this week. That It doesn't matter. Even if I'm a stay-at-home parent and I'm working the home and they work out, I have to do that because if not, I am constantly in survival mode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe 
non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. Some people don't have a partner and they're a single parent. And anyone here is a single parent. You are literally a warrior walking around as a normal human being. So like I see who you really are. And yes, having that community support in your actual village, if not, if it's online, like that matters. Even if someone can't do the bath for you, someone who will reach out to you and say, I know it's bath time and I know that's really hard. I'm thinking of you or someone you could talk to after it matters a little bit. We have to get that support. And then we have to, and I think this is a whole process. I think this is like the essence of, you know, the essence, I think really of like the good inside platform is someone once said this to me yesterday. She was, I don't even think you care about kids. I was like, whoa, what do you mean by that? Of course I care about kids. She's like, I think you just care about adults carving out more time for themselves and feeling more empowered and especially moms, like feeling more entitled to set boundaries and tap into their non-caregiving parts. I know you're going to say that ends up being a better mom and that ends up benefiting our kids, blah, blah. But I don't think you do this for the kids. I think you do this for the adults. And look, I was like, can't both things be true, but I'll run with that. We have to change this idea that parenting is about emptying yourself, being selfless, like bullshit. Nobody benefits from selfless parenting. That is terrifying for an adult. That is terrifying for a kid to have a selfless leader. Like, each nobody wins. And having a system and having resources and having support to actually take this from an idea into actionable steps, I think number one is critical for all of our mental health. I think number two is actually going to like change the world. Like, I think it's revolutionary. I really, really do. Absolutely. That's actually, you know, why I started this whole platform is for that exact reason. What's your experience with helping, particularly mothers, because I know you really love talking to parents and I love your mission to get more fathers involved. But I feel like in this moment where we are, it is the mothers doing 70% of the invisible labor still in the home. You know, I was at the doctor's surgery this morning. It's all mums. It's all mums. You know, I can see them trying to do their emails and I was there too. It's just, how does a mum know whether she needs to raise those standards or whether I've just got to keep surviving. Because I feel like a lot of the mums I was going to have survived for 10 years, 15 years. Is there more sort of nuance or if this is happening, you really need to do that? Or if you're perpetually feeling like this, you really need to do that. Have you got any insight there? Look, I wish there was like one barometer, right? And actually, I think the fact that there's not one barometer is kind of the point because guess what? You know, we have we have our own barometer. And look, if you're listening and you think, Dr. Becky and Zoe, like I literally am so far from knowing my own barometer. Let me just say this. That's because it was adaptive for you in your early years to get as distant as possible from your own barometer of how you were doing. No baby came out of the womb being like, am I really hungry? Like if I cry, am I going to make everyone upset? Yeah, I just don't think I need this bottle. Like <laughs> That's never happened. You come out as a ball of want and need and feeling full of freedom to express yourself, whatever. So something happens between then and now. And that journey is the one that we need to repair it and recircuit and give something so different to our kids. And yeah, especially our daughters. 
our daughters will learn what adulthood and partnership and motherhood is from us, not from anything we say, but from the energy they pick up from us. So how do you know that you need to change? I would never venture to know that for someone else. Like, what would I say that barometer is? It's some version of like, is this version of a life working for me right now? Is this working for me? Is this serving me? Is it serving me to never ask for help? Is it serving me for whenever I do ask for help when my partner does some version of, oh, I don't know. Is it serving me to take in that distress and then say back, okay, no worries. Or is it going to serve me better to learn to tolerate my partner's distress? Yeah, bath time is annoying. I appreciate you taking it on anyway. Kind of have fun with that. You know, someone said to me recently, like, I have trouble. My, it was a husband. She said, my husband, you know, works X number of hours a week outside the home. And whenever I say, hey, I would like to sleep in one of the weekend mornings, you know, he's kind of says to me like, oh, like alone with like both of our kids, you know, like that's kind of some version of like, that's so hard. Right. And I'm like, you're allowed to say back to him. I know it is so hard. You know, there's a lot of online workshops that like help parents with those things. Like if I, you know, I'm happy to send you a link, you could find them on your own. Like, you know, and for effectiveness, is that exactly how I would deliver it? Probably not. But if you're someone who has trouble standing up for yourself and setting your own boundary, then what that really means is you tend to take on other people's distress as your problem to metabolize. And a critical part of change is never waiting for someone else to say some version of, you know what? I'm so glad you asked me if you could sleep in. You deserve that. You really deserve it. And nothing would make me happier than waking up with our two kids. Like if you are waiting for your partner to say that, you will wait your whole life. People say, I want to ask for help and then get help without feeling guilty. Doesn't work that way. The only reason you feel guilty anyways, that's not even real guilt. It's just the way you've taken in someone else's distress. You can't choose that not to happen. So is this working for me? Is this serving me? And I think actually the next step, Zoe, is what distress in other people do I have to learn to tolerate, to have a system that serves me better? It's so true, isn't it? Like, are we able to sit with the almost take your skin off discomfort, which is how I experience it, of someone being displeased with me? That's right. And I know you've taken the DFK courses, right? We talk about how DFK is deeply feeling kids are very porous to the world. That's like one of the words I have. Like, it's why they tantrum and melt down so much more easily. It's why they're almost like a little paranoid about other people. It's because they know they're so porous. So they take in so much and they almost need to protect themselves more vigilantly. Well, if you think about so many women and so many mothers, our major struggle really is our porousness. We take in other people's feelings as if they're our own. That is not empathy. Empathy is the process of seeing and kind of understanding someone else's experience. As soon as you've taken someone else's feelings and kind of taken them in, you're no longer connecting with anyone else. You're actually just working on your own body. You're not even in a relationship. You have to have a boundary to see and empathize with someone else's feelings because they're those people's feelings. So anyone listening right now, like I actually want you to go through this exercise with me. It's one of the most powerful ones I think we have to do, especially as women who can be porous to the world, to our partners, to our kids, is almost like take your hands near your body and like push out, (laughs) like push out your partner's distress at waking up early with the kids. Push out their annoyance that they have to do bedtime because not pushing away forever, but pushing out meaning that's not my feeling. Like I'm just giving that feeling back to its owner. I don't know how exactly it got into my body. Okay. But it doesn't serve me 
and it doesn't serve my partnership, and it definitely doesn't serve my family system, to keep someone else's feeling in my body. I can care about someone else's feelings, but I don't have to take it on and care for it as if it's my own. It's so interesting because I had this exact challenge with my now six-year-old, but when she was one, the level of enmeshment, like it felt like when she was tantruming, it felt like I couldn't bear. I mean, it was literally like intolerable to me because I was taking on her feeling, her fame, because I was also remembering all the times that I was like that or my body was remembering. And that internal boundary I've had to work so hard on it, but it's so simple the way that you say, just give that feeling back to its rightful owner, whether it's our partner, our boss, our children, give it back. And then once you give it back, what's really interesting is like now you actually can empathize with it. Because if I don't give it back, this is what I say. Let's say my partner's like, oh, the bath, I really like had a long day. Okay. If I don't give it back, I'll say something like this. Oh, you know, do you think your job is more important than my job or, you know, something like that? Or I might say, oh, but I'm so tired. Or I might say nothing. And then I'm just going to act nasty to my partner later because I resent him. If I give it back and I just see, okay, my partner doesn't want to do bath. I mean, give that back to him. It's actually interesting. I might empathize now, which actually helps me hold up my boundary because I'm almost reminding my body. It's not my feeling. That's his. I might say, I know bath at the end of the day is annoying. Like it's the least enjoyable hour of parenting. I don't know, but whatever I want to say, I know it's really annoying, especially when they protest, right? I get that you don't want to do it. And then if my partner's kind of so bold to be like, so you'll do it? I might say, no, these are both of our kids. And it's really important to me that I'm not always doing bath. What I'm really just trying to say is I get that you don't want to do it. That doesn't even make you a bad dad. I understand that. I find it unenjoyable too. Like now I'm actually empathizing with the feeling because I can see it. I'm not responding to what it means in me. I'm responding to what's actually happening for my partner. Now we can be a little more connected. And guess what? There's probably going to be an increased likelihood your partner's actually going to do the bath because they feel understood. They feel supported. All the things we always want too. Yeah. And you mentioned guilt there because sometimes I've done things like that. And then I've walked down the stairs feeling guilty guilty that he's doing something he doesn't want to do, guilty that I'm not the one doing bath time, guilty that I'm about to go out and do yoga or something for me. What is that about? There's a saying, I don't know if you have it in America, in the UK, people love to say, oh yeah, you give birth to the baby, you give birth to the guilt. They come hand in hand. And I really hate that. I really hate it. So here's how I see guilt. I feel like there's two ways we feel guilt. And the way I think about it is one is guilt and one is not guilt. And I think the one that you're describing is not guilt. So I'll explain. Guilt, in my mind, true guilt is a feeling we have when we watch ourselves act in a way that's not in accordance with our values. So if I snap at my kids because really I'm annoyed that I went over on my cell phone bill and I'm like stressed and I'm annoyed and then my kid asks for something and I'm like, essentially my body's like, this is someone small you can take out your own upset with, right? And then I yell like, no, you can't have you know this thing you asked for. Then after I'm like, I feel guilty. And I think that's guilt. doesn't mean I'm a horrible person. That's shame is when our behavior we see as a reflection of our identity. But if we go back to, wait, I'm good inside. I'm a good parent who yelled at my kids. That's not in accordance with my values. Like my value is treating my kid with respect and dealing with my own emotions and not vomiting them on my kids. So 
it's actually a good thing I feel guilty. My guilt actually helps me change. It might help me repair. It might help me reflect on that's not in accordance with my values. Why did that happen? I guess I didn't pay attention to that feeling that came up about my cell phone bill. Let me bore, let me take a moment next time to say to myself, oh, that stinks. I'm going to get through it. Okay, that's guilt. Here is not guilt. Your husband's putting down your kids and you get to go to your nighttime yoga class, like you said, something like that. And you leave and you know your husband's annoyed. Maybe even you hear your kids crying, mommy, you know, I want you, you know, and you walk out. Every time, every time. Every time, right? Every time. So what is going on there? Okay, guilt is when I act in a way that's not in accordance with my values. I am going to yoga and doing something for myself. Is that in accordance or not in accordance with my values? My guess is, though, you'd be like, that's in accordance with my values. It's hard to put into practice, but is that correct? Like that is a value of yours to be able to have that time for yourself? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So then I think that's like always the way to say like, okay, so this is something else. Like this is not guilt. So what's happening? Well, I hear my kids crying. That's their feelings. I hear, maybe I don't hear it, but I know my husband's annoyed. That's their feelings. So many adults, and I do think it's more women than men, we've been taught to take in other people's distress and transform it into our guilt. And then once it's our guilt, we have the responsibility to rework it. And then instead of other people learning emotion regulation skills, it's like we've taken it on for the whole village. That is not guilt. And I think what happens, I always picture this as a tennis court. I don't know why. I'm not even a tennis player. But if you think about the middle, instead of as a net, there's like a glass wall kind of, so you can see through it, but there's a wall and it's not so porous. If you think about you on one side, I would say, okay, I value having time for myself. That actually is within my values. I'm on this side of the tennis court going to yoga. Okay. What's happening on the other side and put them all the way back on the baseline. They're not like allowed to play net all the way back on the baseline. So there's distance. There's my husband. He's annoyed. There are my kids. They're disappointed. That's over there. And then we can almost watch. I mean, it. it's almost like their tears and their annoyance, like float out of their bodies, come toward that glass wall, almost like somehow figure out how to get through and like enter into our bodies. And we metabolize that as our fault or as guilty. And I think this reflects back to something we just said, like, wait a second, that is not my guilt. That is my kids or my husband's disappointment, distress. Maybe it's even their lack of approval. Okay. But that's on a totally different side of the tennis court. And that idea of like, if it starts to float your way, it is, I think, really important as adults, as women to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not that I don't care about these feelings, but they're not on my side. Like that is literally not my feeling. I did not generate that feeling. That is their feeling. And once we see it that way, we can intervene in a bunch of different ways. We can say when we get back to our husband, I know that wasn't your favorite night. I appreciate you doing things in our partnership that you know are important for me, even when you don't like them. I always think like when my husband's annoyed that I do things I always feel like in some ways, it's a sign of how much he loves me. Like he's willing to be annoyed in our partnership. Great. That's what it means to be married. Kind of. Right? Like That's a solid marriage. My kids are upset that I'm leaving. Well, that's a sign of our close attachment. And I also know that we build resilience in those moments, right? As long as my kid knows they're safe and I return, I talk about them before and after. Wow, my child's building resilience. Resilience building isn't pretty. It looks like that. And I think that tennis court visual And that question of, am I acting in accordance with my values? It really helps us contextualize what's really happening and really frees us from that second version of guilt that isn't guilt. It's the weight of other people's feelings that we have learned to take in and metabolize. And I think most women are like, I don't want to do that anymore. That does not serve me. It never did. 
I used to have to do it, thank goodness for my adaptation, but that no longer serves me. I feel like maybe it's because I hang out on Instagram too much. There's like a swell of change coming for mothers and motherhood on a societal, on a structural, on an organizational, individual level. I don't think we're there yet. Do you feel that same swell? I feel many things about it. Like that one that you're referring to. Yes, I do feel like there's a lot more talk about this and movement around this. And like, hey, I have wants just because I have a kid now. It doesn't mean I don't want things. In fact, sometimes having a kid and how hard everything is the thing that brings women in touch with the fact that I never have known my wants. And now's the time I'm going to find them because boy, do I need them. I do feel like that. It's hard for me to be as gung-ho about that in America after the Roe v. Wade overturn and the idea, (laughs) you know, that there's this groundswell. And I do think that's true. It's at odds with this policy change. And I can just tell you, I am more fired up than ever. You know, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I do think women have been questioning this role that we've been locked into and are saying more and more like, no, no. And that doesn't mean I want none of it, but this does not define me. Yeah. We can't fill ourselves up by pouring ourselves out. The physics of that does not work. And I do think there's a groundswell around that. And I am so excited alongside you to be in that movement. And yes, I am very hopeful about the change it will bring, especially as hopefully more and more women join in. There's power in numbers. Wait, yeah, I can be a loving caregiver to my kids, to a partner, and and I can be a loving caregiver to myself. Like my needs and wants matter too. Yeah, because it really serves a patriarchal society to have knackered, burnout, resentful women and mothers. It really serves them, doesn't it? When we're actually unable to get to our power. It's really interesting. I haven't really talked about this publicly, but I've been thinking about it. I just haven't talked about it publicly because my thoughts aren't fully formed yet, but that's okay. So there was a media article that came out a little while ago about Good Inside, and it was written by a woman. And there's been a bunch of them. They've largely been, I don't know, pretty accurate, even though I'm always hesitant. Media these days is often about looking for clicks, right? It's not looking for accuracy of the story. But this story was particularly biting around things. And It talked about how side-by-side to my Instagram and podcast and our newsletter, all of which are free, the words were, it's off-putting that we would have a paid membership, right? It's off-putting. And about me being one of a number of people who are, quote, profiting off of desperate parents. This was the words. And I took a zoom out from this, which I realized, again, this has nothing to do with me. But this idea... Oh, and it also put part of the, quote, parenting industry, put it in quotes, you know, it's really interesting. So I'm like, you know what? There's no industry in the world that people value, that people think the people in that job shouldn't have access to resources. Nothing. No one's saying, oh, those people who do executive coaching and all the psychological work now with CEOs, they are profiting off desperate CEOs, this executive coaching quote industry, how off-putting. And there's really this messaging about parenting, which has largely been done by women. So devaluing to motherhood and serving of this patriarchal idea that women should just, quote, know how to do this. Why is that the case? They shouldn't have access to resources that make them feel better. Not only do their job better, but just make them feel more confident and more empowered. And that people who assist in that journey shouldn't be able to make a living off that too. I was like, fuck that. 
Like this whole thing is just steeped in patriarchy. Nobody says that about men and male-oriented jobs. And it really is interesting. On our community website, I, I said something about it in the membership, and I've never seen so many responses to anything I've posted. People are like, they read the article, they're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And it does. It just further rallies people, right? That yes, this whole movement, not only is it a way of parenting that's going to empower our kids and help them feel more at home with themselves and both set boundaries and have feelings and all those things. This is really a movement for women who are saying this system doesn't work. And I am no longer willing to do the job of pushing myself down to lay a foundation for other people to feel confident and empowered and to thrive no more. Amen. And there is nothing that will keep someone feeling less valued, isn't it? Than parenting industry or assuming that, you know, I get it all the time because I came from a relatively successful corporate background into working with mothers. Oh, it's so cute that you work with mums now. That's so cute. It literally makes my blood boil because it's like you have no idea what's coming for you <laughs> when this groundswell of women and mothers. I find it, and you can hear it in my voice, I find it almost, I can't even speak. You've, you've done more processing clearly about than me because it makes me so angry. The devaluation and the patting on the head. It's cute, isn't it? You help mums. So cute. <laughs> and it's like the power that women have. I feel like we've forgotten. Imagine if us mothers could remember that we are responsible for the human race. Imagine if we remembered that. Yes, 100%. I mean, the power of women. I've thought about this a lot. Like, well, what is happening in this time period? And I do feel like women, we've opened the door to the idea that we can want more. That door used to be even more shut. But it's tricky to be in the generation where the door is open, but the system isn't set up for those wants to be realized. Going back to the idea of tantrums, like why is it so hard to be a young kid? Well, you know what you want, but you don't have the skills yet to manage those wants. Well, guess what? I feel like this is the age of women being like, wait a second, I can reopen that door to my own wants. I can want things, but the system hasn't caught up. And so we're the generation that knows it, well, we're not the generation. I mean, the generations before obviously have fought for women's rights and voting rights and done so much more, right? I think that this generation I see around me of women in the home who are saying like, just yes, and yes, this matters. And there's more than I want. It's really powerful. I do feel like that. I feel like because we are the generation where there are more of us working than ever before, which is an incredible thing. And the system in the home and externally around the organizations that we're working in outside and inside have not caught up. So we are the generation, I think, where we're almost like the experiment, that we are the ones who are trying to forge those careers, work outside the home, empower ourselves, speak up, become activists, do all of it. And we are still doing the washing, the cooking, the cleaning. And then typically we're going, it's me. There's something wrong with me. And I feel like in generations to come, particularly with the pandemic, people think like, wow, that was a time when it really, those two crunch factors coming together. No wonder, you know, parental burnout is the highest it's ever been since records began. I think that's exactly right. So for everyone listening here, you know, I think again, as women going back to that tennis court thing, right? Like we tend to take in the distress of others or the distress in a system as our own and therefore our fault. And pushing it back out, <laughs> even if you don't know what's going to happen next, I just imagine like what would happen if all the women were like, wait a second, it's not me. It's not me. It is not me. 
(laughs) This is not my problem. This is not my fault. I think we're starting to do that. And I think even today, everyone listening, you know, saying some version of that to yourself, like if everything feels like too much, it's, it's because it's too much, right? It's because it's too much. It's not because it's my fault. It's a really, really liberating idea. It comes with most full circle, doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with my child. We are all good inside. Yes. And the system needs some work. (laughs) I always ask the same question at the end. I can't wait to hear your answer, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think I do come back to that idea of internal goodness, right? You could say good enoughness, but really just internal goodness. And I'm going to put that kind of, I guess, idea or gift into an actionable strategy as I like to do. I think sentence starter, I'm a good mom who, okay? And then finishing that sentence with something that usually activates your bad mom thoughts is life-changing. So for example... I left the other day for dinner with my friend. My daughter was very upset, wanted me to put her down. I, you know, I said some version of, I, I know you're upset, you're allowed to feel that way, and you're gonna get through it. But then I left, she was still upset. And I said to myself, I'm a good mom whose child is upset. Versus I think what can happen is oh, I'm such a bad mom who leaves their crying daughter, right? So I'm a good mom whose kid is tantruming at a birthday party. I'm a good mom who just yelled at her kid. I'm a good mom who really, really does not enjoy playing Play-Doh, whatever it is. I think that that actually has the power for us to get grounded in our goodness instead of spiraling in shame. And I really think if all of us moms get grounded in our goodness, the world better watch out for where we're going to put our energy next. I love it. That is so powerful. I am a good mom who dot, dot, dot. I was just thinking of examples that I was putting in as you were saying it. So I would really encourage everyone listening to just practice that out today. Practice this out the moment you press pause on this podcast. Dr. Becky, where can people find your workshops? I have to say your deeply feeling workshop I did was incredible. As everyone knows of you, your ability to condense big ideas into these ways that we can actually do it is incredible. I want everyone to do one of your workshops. Thank you. Well, honestly, you know, I love our workshops, right? Because I feel like people are like, they're long, they're 75 minutes. And I always say, I'm like, I really mean it. Those 75 minutes are like hours and hours and hours condensed into like just the things you need to know. So take them five minutes at a time. But there's so many of them. The Deeply Feeling Kids happens to be my favorite one because those kids are the most misunderstood kids in the world. They are diagnosed. They are labeled as bad kids. They are given ODD, you know, like these labels. And we have to look at them differently to help them. But all of the workshops are now part of our membership because when people say, which one should I take? I would say, oh, I want you to take all of them. Or over time, we need all of them, not because anyone's a bad parent or a flawed parent, but because you know today's the issue is here and tomorrow the issue is going to be something else because our kids develop through so many different stages. So at goodinside.com, you can check out the entire workshop collection. You can still get any of them one off. Our sleep approach is really different from what's out there. Sibling rivalry, the reparenting workshop, deeply feeling kids, a back to school, a million things. And then all of the workshops plus live events, including three with me a month, access to me and good inside trained coaches, a community of global like valued parents. All of that is in membership. And you can find my book and so many other things. All of it is at goodinside.com. 
And if none of those things feel right, I would say still go to that site and even just grab my free Thursday email where I do condense kind of my most important weekly thoughts to be delivered right into your inbox. Incredible. You've got our back. (laughs) (laughs) And you've got us too. We are in this together, Zoe. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 